Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new series, Esther, God's Perfect Work Through Imperfect People. This week, lead pastor David Fossil uses the word from Esther to show us how our own imperfections look different when we see them from a different perspective. Listen as we're challenged to consider our own personality traits and the effect they have on our families. Would you agree? Good to see you guys. Would you agree that uh, as the years go by, that maybe occasionally, sometimes, we take our spouses for granted? You think that happens every once in a while? Do you think that maybe, just possibly, um, we don't quite love on our spouse and show the kindness to our spouse and pursue our spouse like we did when we first were dating and we first got married? Is there any chance that that changes over time? If you're honest, you know that it does. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit this morning. Someone sent me this a while back in terms of how perspectives change. It's entitled, Seven Years of the Married Cold. And it gives the perspective of a husband and and what he says to his wife when she has a cold over the first seven years of their marriage. So let me just read it to you. On the first year, when she has a cold, here's what he says. Sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all the strep going around. I'm admitting you to the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food is lousy, but I'll bring you meals in from Rosini's. I've got it all arranged with the head nurse. That's how he responds on year number one. Year number two, this is what he says when his wife gets a cold. Darling, I don't like the sound of that cough and I've called Doc Miller to rush over here. Now go to bed and get some rest. Year number three, here's what he says when she gets a cold. Sweetheart, go lie down, take a nap, and when you wake up, I'll make you some soup. Year number four, this is how he responds when his wife gets a cold. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids and got the kitchen cleaned up, you should probably lie down. <laughs> Things begin to change, right? Year number five, goodness, why don't you take a little as- a couple aspirin already? Year number seven, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to intentionally give me pneumonia? And year number seven, here's what the husband says when his wife gets a cold. I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal all evening. (laughs) The reality is that sometimes we develop bad habits. We begin to take each other for granted. We don't do the things we first did for and with our spouse that made us fall in love with them. This morning, we are talking about how to make sure that your marriage doesn't implode or how to enhance your family. On the study guide, what I call it, family survival guide. I don't care what we call it. Our topic this morning is family. Our topic this morning is marriage and how to enhance it and how to improve it. Now, to do that, we are starting a brand new series in the Old Testament book of Esther. I'm just curious as we get started, how many of you, by a show of hands, know the story and or have read the book of Esther in the Old Testament? Okay, decent amount. How many of you haven't read the book, but you know someone who has an aunt named Esther? A couple of you. How many of you aren't going to raise your hand no matter what I ask? There's a couple of you out there. I see you over there, Cheryl. There's a couple, right? So what we're going to do, I want to encourage you real quick. There's 10 chapters in the book of Esther. I'm going to more or less do one chapter a week. We won't be able to do that all the time. 
I would encourage you sometime this week, take 30 minutes and read through the 10 chapters. It'll give you the big picture so that we won't get caught up in the minutia. So I just want to encourage you uh, to do that. I got a lot of stuff to cover as we're introducing the, the, the book this morning. So I'm going to jump right in. If you want to follow along in the church Bible, we're on page 494. Page 494. I'll have most of the verses up, but that might help you as well. Verse 1, chapter 1 says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Xerxes, who ruled over the 127 provinces, stretching all the way from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel or the city of Susa. Now, if you read history books, this guy Xerxes was super famous and well-known. He was the Persian king at the time, and he was the man, the world leader at the time. He was in charge of the known world at the time. He was one superpower, it was Persia, and he was in charge, King Xerxes. He's popular enough that he's actually, he's been talking about in literature and even talked about in, in, in Hollywood. On the left side, let me show you the picture of artists of how they portray him. And then on the right side is how he was portrayed in the movie 300. I don't know, I'm not necessarily recommending that movie, but that movie is a movie about King Xerxes fighting the Greek king Leonidas and his 300 valiant, uh, valiant warriors. That's him. He's a famous guy. Now, you're going to know, and I'm going to tell you more about Xerxes as the time goes on. For the moment, here's what you need to know. He's not a nice guy. He's not a nice guy. He's incredibly mean. Um, the one thing he was known for is he would constantly uh, attack and destroy any nation he came across. That's Xerxes. Esther chapter 1, he's going to do exactly that in his marriage. He will attack and effectively destroy his marriage. Well, what I'm going to do is we're going to look at Xerxes, and the goal is to do everything opposite that he does in our marriages and in our families. Do everything the opposite. Now, I'm going to tell you up front. I'm going to give you five, six different things to think about and to work on. I don't care if you jot down notes or not. Here's your job. You have to listen for the one thing, the one reason God brought you here today. Every one of us God brought here for a purpose and for a reason. And there's at least one nugget this morning as we study family and marriage. He wants you to think about and to work on. So whether you write it down or not, you got to be listening to it. Five or six things. Let's jump in. Here's the first thing we're going to talk about. Let's put it up there. Larry, verse three talks about first of three banquets that he has or parties. Party number one, in the third year of Xerxes' reign, he had this party, this banquet for all of his nobles and his officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and all the nobles and the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. You know, when we were in college, if the party lasted all night, that was supposed to be a really good party. At least that's what Sandy tells me. She was into that. I would do Bible studies on Friday night. Uh, this guy's party, this guy's party lasts 180 days. It goes for six months. You talk about the mother of all parties. History books tell us that this six-month party, he invited and had 15,000 guests. 
political leaders and military leaders and key people from around his empire. They all came and went over this six-month period. Like I said, this was the party of all parties. I mean, they had dancing. They had girls. They had loud music. They had catered food. They had tons of drinking. History books also tell us that the very first episode of Girls Gone Wild was filmed at this party. I mean, it was crazy, right? This, if you and I had this kind of party, the neighbors would call the cops. But the chief of police was at the party. And he owned the cops. So they just went crazy for six months. Party number one. Party number two comes next. When the seven days were over, the king gave another banquet, another party. This one lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So party number one, six months are for all the political and military and key leaders in the in the empire. Party number two, seven days is for all his homies, all his buddies living in the city of Susa. Party number two. And it was just as spectacular. It tells us where they had it and what he did. It says the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen, purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones, all from the Martha Stewart design collection. I mean, it was incredible. You know, that's why you should have your Bibles up and you never know when I'm going to slip in. This guy's palace was awesome awesome party number one six months political and military leaders party number two seven days with all his boys from Susa. party number three his wife's party check it out let's put it up there queen vashti his wife also gave a banquet she also had a party this was just for the ladies for the women in the royal palace of king xerxes when you're doing a study and three things happen over and over and over again at the beginning of the book, it should draw your attention and you should ask the question, why? Why all the parties? What's going on here? There's two reasons. One is practical. Practical reason number one is he, Xerxes is preparing for a military campaign against the Greeks. So he's bringing in the military leaders to plan and prepare. He's bringing in the political leaders to kind of convince them and make sure the people know what we're doing and why we're doing it. A lot of us are going to die, so we might as well have a great time. That's what's happening. Part, uh, reason number one. But reason number two is the primary reason. And, and it, is, it is inserted into the text prominently to make sure we get it. I, maybe you missed it. I read through it, but notice what it says. Let's put the slide up there. It says this, for a full 180 days... Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. What's the purpose of the party? So everybody pays attention to me. Everybody look at me, King Xerxes. I'm awesome. I'm good looking. I'm wealthy. I'm popular. I'm famous. I'm the man. That's the reason for the party. So that everybody gives props to King Xerxes. You and I would call that pride. You could see that's the first issue we're dealing with here. In fact, this guy was so prideful. He was so stuck on himself that at one point in time, uh, we're told that he announced to all the people that he governed that he, in fact, wasn't a human being at all. No, I'm really a God. I would think that qualifies as someone who struggles with pride. Would you? I'm a God, right? You've got to be pretty stuck on yourself. Uh, let, let me give you some characteristics 
uh, of pride. So you get some perspective what we're talking about here in terms of eliminating it and cultivating uh, humility. If you can identify two of these on the screen, this may be your thing this morning. Let's go through them. Uh, You have no time to help others. You have no time because my schedule and my life is more important than your schedule and your life. That's how that goes. Uh, You rarely ask for advice. Why would I ask for advice? I know all the answers. The third bullet point, you fail to acknowledge God's blessing. You see, I'm successful in life, not because God has blessed me, but because I'm smart and because I'm a hard worker and because I know how to advance in my company. That's why I'm successful. Conversations are all about yourself. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and, and, and you're talking about, they're talking about their vacation and their family and their business and their Christmas, vac- Christmas time. It's all about them. And then that part of the conversations end and they never ask you about your family and your vacation. Have you ever had one of those conversations? Instinctively, what's happening, whether they realize it or not, they have an issue with pride. Because instinctively, in the back of their mind, they're going, you know why we're talking about my life and my vacation? Because it's infinitely more interesting than your life and your vacation. It's pride, okay? You come across as a know-it-all, even in subject matters that you don't much know about anything about. You're condescending towards others. In other words, you talk down to them. You rarely admit mistakes or say, I'm sorry. In other words, if there is a mistake, it's not really my fault. It's someone else's fault at the company or someone else's fault in the family. It certainly can't be my fault, okay? Um, You're self-reliant to a fault. Now, being independent and self-reliant is a good thing. It's what we're trying to teach our children to be, right? Independent. But if you're independent and self-reliant to a fault and I never need your help, it's a form of pride, okay? The last one is you're frustrated with interruptions because my time and my schedule is more important than you realize. And when you interrupt me, it bothers me. These are some characteristics of pride. One of my favorite stories about someone uh, that kind of had an issue with this was about Muhammad Ali. Uh, I realize the younger generation, you, you may not know much about Muhammad Ali. He's probably considered to be the, the greatest uh, heavyweight boxer of all times. He, he was a great boxer. He was very entertaining and he was very, very cocky. Uh, when you ever, ever watched him do an interview, it was part of his persona, but he was very stuck on himself. And the story is told of Muhammad Ali one day when he was on a plane and Muhammad Ali decided he did not want to wear a, a seatbelt. He was not going to put his seatbelt on. And the, so the stewardess came by and said, uh, I am sorry, but you have to put on your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali uh, said, uh, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Right. And right away, the stewardess answered, you're right. Superman don't need no seatbelt, but Superman also don't need no airplane. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty clever comeback. You want to know the biggest problem with pride? It's very hard to self-diagnose. If you're in a if you're in a small group, and you're a bunch of guys or a bunch of gals and and you get to that point in time, okay, we're going to go around and talk about what we need to pray for each other for. Let's, let's all talk about that one thing we really struggle the most with. Have you ever had anyone in the group admit this? No one ever admits it. You never ever have anyone go, yeah, I struggle with pride. I pretty much think I'm better than all the rest of you. <laughs> you never have anyone say that. We don't think of ourselves as prideful. Very, very hard to self-diagnose. Let me help, you, help me uh, phrase it a little bit different. I want you on a scale of one to 10 to determine how prideful you are or whether you struggle with it or not. One, I don't struggle with it at all. 10, 
It's a major issue for me. It's Muhammad Ali type pride. Okay. Give yourself a score, right? You have it locked in your brain. You got it. Okay. Sociologists and psychologists, and most importantly, biblical authors will say that if you want an accurate assessment of whether you are prideful or not, you probably should add three points to whatever score you gave yourself. Now it's more realistic. You gave yourself a two, you're more like a five. You gave yourself a five, I'm sorry, you're more like an eight or nine. We don't think of ourselves as someone said that pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick around except the person that has it. Because we never realize it. We can't identify whether we have it or not. And part of my job is to shake you up a little bit and say, maybe this is something some of us need to think about. Something we have an issue with. Here's the consequences of pride. Let me show you. Let's put the next slide up there, Larry. The first is that it prevents personal growth. Proverbs 26. Think about it. If I'm a prideful person, why do I need to change? Why do I need to improve? I'm already pretty good. I'm already pretty special. So it limits personal growth because I don't think I need it as much. Does that make sense? It prevents personal growth. The second thing, and this is scary, it produces distance with God. Do you realize that the Bible says that God hates? I don't know about you guys, but in my family, anytime my kids say that and they mean it, we tell them, oh, no, 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 time out. That's probably not, that's not really a word we use in our family. But the Bible said God hates someone with haughty or prideful eyes. When you think about it, it's not that hard to figure out. We don't like hanging out with prideful, cocky people, do we? They're not fun to hang out with. God feels the same way. He doesn't like it. So if nothing else, you realize you're, he has an issue with you if you're not willing to admit and do something with your pride. And then the last thing, and, and I'm going to bring it home to our topic this morning, is Proverbs 13.10 says that it poisons relationships. Proverbs 13, it says that it, that it, um, it breeds conflict, it breeds problems, it breeds fights and issues. You know, I'm glad that God put you in your family. But you do realize there's other people in your family with other ideas and other thoughts. It's not all about you, right? So I'm going to ask you again, what score did you give yourself? Add two or three. And do you think maybe it's something you need to work on? Begin to replace pride with humility. Humility isn't putting yourself down. It's having the ability to acknowledge other people's contributions and realize, I don't know it all. I don't know it all. Okay? Uh, Let's keep moving on. Second thing I want to talk to you about is is control. Self-control. You're going to see that Xerxes has a particular issue with self-control revolving a particular substance. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. Still talking about the party. Now notice, he doesn't have all the same wine glasses, all the same beer mugs. Oh, no, no. He has different goblets. You know why? Every time he invades a different country, he goes to their palace and takes all their silverware and all their cool glasses. He's bragging over and over again. Oh, I got that when I invaded so-and-so. I got that from King so-and-so. 
That's what he's doing. It's more bragging. It's served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. The author wants to make sure we know it was royal wine. In other words, it's the good stuff. He's not serving two buck truck from Trader Joe's. He's not serving wine in a box. Oh, no, no. This is $75, $100 bottles of wine from the best vintners in Napa Valley. It's royal wine. Okay. He says, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wise stewards to serve each man what he wished. You know what that means? It was open bar. So just start to put, put the pieces together. The best alcohol you can find on the, in the land plus open bar equals what? Check it. Yeah, thank you very much. We have a CR program. Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> says on the seventh day when king xerxes was high in high spirits from wine what that means is that he's toasted he's plastered the guy is drunk okay we're going to talk about it it's in the text about when you drink too much uh but before we do there's a video i want you to watch about uh, a police officer that pulls someone over and they're a little bit how should i say high spirits from wine so watch it and then we'll talk you know <laughs> If when people drank too much, they were always like the cowboy, it wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be an issue. Here's when it becomes an issue. Here's when it becomes a problem. Sometimes when people drink too much, they don't become fun or funny like the cowboy. Some people get mean. Some people get violent. Some people, when they drink too much, it brings out the worst in them, not the best in them. Some people, when they drink, they're incredibly hurtful and destructive with their words. And sometimes when people drink too much, they get in a car and they start to drive. They make a mistake and they hurt someone very, very badly. That's why drinking can be a serious issue and a serious problem. I, I don't think I've ever told you my, my perspective when it comes to drinking and alcohol is very much so conditioned by where I grew up and how I grew up. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Europe. I lived in Spain uh, until I was 18 years old. Uh, now, if you don't know much about Spain, Spain is one of the top wine-producing countries in the world. The champagne that was produced within 40 minutes of the home that I lived in competed with champagnes from France. That's what I lived in. The culture and the perspective on drinking, even within the Christian community, was completely different than what it is here today. I'll give you some examples. I remember as a little boy, after a wedding, okay, we would always have the reception at the church. After a wedding, uh, I would remember seeing the elders, deacons, and pastor of the church carrying all the food in carrying the wedding cake in and carrying in cases of champagne to the church. That's what I grew up in. Every Sunday, my dad, who was a Bible uh, a college professor, was invited to different churches to speak, to preach. And after he was done preaching, they would invite us to someone's home and we would have a meal there and they would typically give us a paella, which is delicious. And then everybody would get some wine. My parents would get a full glass. I, as a kid, would get a third of a glass. And it was considered to be rude and disrespectful if you didn't drink it. That's what I, that's how I grew up. Okay. I remember the first beer that I ever had. Well, what church do you see a pastor tell you the first beer? This is a great church. Pastor tells you when he had his first beer. Here's my first beer, right? In, in here in the States, we have church softball leagues, right? You play good. In Spain, we had church soccer leagues. 
we would pay against another church. And we had a soccer game that started at 9 p.m., ended at 10 p.m., right? Um, and after that, our team and their team and our youth pastor took us out and we had beer and burgers. That was my first beer. Can you imagine if our youth pastor did that? Can you imagine how crazy that would be? That'd be a problem here. Now, give give you some context. In Spain, there is no minimum drinking age limit. And some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, no minimum drinking age limit. It's got to be crazy there. Actually, probably not what you think. I didn't see my first drunk person till I came to the States, age 18. And I, my perspective was so different. And I started to very quickly see a lot of times people here in the States drink to get drunk. I remember I was a senior in high school when I moved back. And after a, like a basketball game or something, a bunch of the seniors uh, got together. and said, Let's all go buy a six pack of beer and drink it. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not that thirsty. <laughs> it was like drinking six Snapples or something. It's just like, well, this doesn't make any sense, you know. And the persp- a lot of times people drink to get drunk here. In Spain, 95% of the time, it was always in the context of a meal. Okay? Now, I'm not saying they don't have issues in Spain. I'm just wanting to give you perspective on how I grew up. Now, here's what would be the easiest thing to do. When I moved back to the States, we went to a church in Michigan, and here's what that church told us. Um, it is sinful to drink. If you drink, you are sinning against God. If we catch you drinking, we will bring you before the deacons and the elders. And if you don't change, we'll kick you out of the church. That would be easy for me to do because it would be cut and dry. Be easy. The problem is I'd be adding things to the Bible that it doesn't say. And I'd prefer to treat you like an adult and challenge you if you choose to have alcohol. You choose to also be filled with the Holy Spirit and cultivate self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, so let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible does not say you must be abstinent. The Bible says you must not be drunk. You must not ever be controlled by alcohol. Okay, now the reality is that some of us may choose to drink or not. Some of us should stop drinking. Some of us are drinking far too much. Far too much. And you may not be part of CR or AA, but uh, it's pretty close. Um, let me give you some perspective of when drinking might be a problem for you. Okay. Let me just go down and and hopefully this makes sense. Um, drinking is a problem when you can't stop at one or two beers. It's not one or two beers. It's a six pack. You can't stop at a glass of wine. It's a bottle or more of wine. That might be a problem. Uh, drinking is a problem when alcohol is your antidepressant of choice or said a different way. It's your primary way you handle stress. I'm telling you, it's a problem if, if that's true, okay? Drinking is a problem when you need it in order to be social. I, I did not hear the phrase social drinking until I moved to the States. And I'm going to tell you, I understand what it means. I really do. But for some reason, it just gets under my skin. I'm going to tell you why. As a Christian, I want to make sure that the world knows that I can be social. I can be fun without needing a glass of wine or a beer. Does that make sense? And I understand what the phrase means, and I have no problem with you go to a New Year's Eve party. I, I, I get that. But if you need it in order to be fun, it's a problem. It's a problem. Drinking is a problem when it causes others to stumble or sin. 
That's his first Corinthians. If when you drink, it causes someone else that shouldn't be drinking to drink, you've just sinned. I, we have some friends in this church that are recovering alcoholics. Why in your right mind would you serve wine or beer at a meal at your home when you know they're struggling with it? Why, when you go to Chevy's, would you order a margarita when you know, and they've told me that for some of them, just the smell of alcohol pushes them over the edge. Why would we do that? If we're causing them to stumble or causing younger people to stumble, it's a problem, which is the next one. Drinking is a problem when you're underage. See, here's what Romans 13 says. We must follow the laws of the land. When you don't, you sin and against God. We have a law in our country that says you have to be a certain age. So, you know, if you want to taste a beer or a glass of wine with your parents at the kitchen table, you know, and take the mystery out of it, parents, that's one thing. But if you're out partying with friends and doing your thing, I'm just telling you, it's sinful. And you can do it. Go ahead, do it. But let's just call it what it is. It's sinning. So let's just call it what it is, okay? Drinking is a problem when you're dependent on it to function. Drinking is a problem when conversation or behavior becomes morally questionable. See, you know it and I know it because we've seen it and or we've experienced it. That we will do or say something or someone else will do or say something that they would never ever think of doing if they didn't have three or four beers in them. You know it. They start saying jokes that are inappropriate. And the issue is not whether they're funny or not. They could be hilarious. They could be hilarious. But this book tells me that as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's some conversations I shouldn't have. There's some jokes I shouldn't make. There's some things I shouldn't do. So the minute your, start, your behavior starts switching and becoming morally questionable, I'm telling you, it's a problem. Okay. The last one, drinking is a problem when, and here is where the rubber meets the road for our topic this morning. It negatively affects your family. We have um, people in this church. We have leaders in this church. And they don't drink, not because they think it's sinful, not because they think it's wrong. It's okay if you drink, but they don't drink. You want to know why? Because they grew up in a home where mom or dad drank so much, it hurt and will kill the family. And, and they say, I, you know what, if you want to drink, that's fine. I just, I can't do it because it brings that all back. Now, I, again, I'm going to treat you like an adult. You can have a beer, a wine, a margarita. But do you realize some of us, the amount that we're drinking is hurting our family? It's hurting your marriage hurting your marriage you go well i don't think i have a problem with it well maybe you don't but maybe you should test yourself why don't you take eight weeks or 12 weeks and prove to yourself you don't have a problem do whatever you got to do now the main issue i'm talking about just make sure you understand is not drinking let's get back to the main issue it's cultivate self-control self-control we're all against drinking and driving bad right well, what about some of us who we don't drink and drive? What about some of us who can't control our words? We are just as destructive at home, not because we're getting drunk, but because you can't control your tongue and you're being hurt. You are cutting their emotions, your kids and your spouse. You want another one? Oh, I, I'm raring to go. I've been off three weeks. So I, I got all kinds of stuff for you. Okay. You want another one with self-control? 
Some of us got to learn to self-control our drinking. Some of us had to learn to self-control our words. Some of us are killing our families because we are not self-controlled in our spending. But I want to get good stuff for Christmas. Good for you. Good for you. And you impressed your kids and you impressed everyone else, but you did not impress God. Some of us are doing more damage to our families, not because we're drinking, but because we cannot control our checkbook. Do you see how much bigger this is? It's not about a six pack. It's about me being filled by the Holy Spirit and saying, I want to be a person of self-control. I don't just am controlled by my appetites for things or for fun or whatever it may be. Okay, I got a lot more stuff to go. So let's keep moving on. The next verse. Let's put it up there. The story goes on in verse 10. And here's what we read. Xerxes commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Mehuman, Bitsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass. Just a quick side note. Uh, those of you who are young uh, couples, couple suggestions for baby names. You might be interested in those. <laughs> Just trying to be helpful. <laughs> uh, Xerxes commanded to bring before him Queen Vashti. Wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. For she was lovely to look at, right? She's a looker. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Now, let me just give you some perspective of what's not happening here. This is not King Xerxes wanting his wife to meet his friends that he works with. You got to meet them. They're great guys. That's not what's happening here. Remember what just happened. These guys are toasted, right? They're, they're playing a game of beer pong. And all of a sudden, Xerxes is like, have you guys seen my wife? She is hot. I'm going to go get her. She is a looker. She's a fox. Let's bring her in, right? He's planning a show and tell. And his wife is the main prop, right? That's what's happening here. Now, at the very least, this goes against Persian etiquette. In those days, you even see it in many Middle Eastern countries, Persian countries today. Many of the women have their head and or their face covered. Some of that is religious, but a lot of that is cultural still to this day. And part of it in those days, I'll tell you what, you, women were not supposed to appear in front of other men that they did not know without their veil. You know, if it was the, the neighbors or the cousins and you knew them, then you were allowed to have your veil up. If you didn't know it, you had to have your veil down. So at the very least, he's breaking Persian protocol and etiquette. But it goes way beyond what I just told you. Um, Hebrew scholars, because Esther is first written in the, in the language of Hebrew and, and it's translated into English so we can understand it. Hebrew scholars tell us that when it was being translated, the uh, English translators possibly didn't explain exactly what was going on here to give you the full picture. And they suggest that if you really want to understand what's going on here, there's all, all you got to do is, is, is one word. That's all you need. Just add one word and it changes your perspective on what's really happening. Let's put the one word up there. Xerxes commanded to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing only her royal crown. He is treating who should be the most important woman in his life like a common stripper. That's what's going on here. 
It sure, this went from PG-13 to R-rated right away, didn't it? All the women here are going, well, no wonder any woman in her right mind would tell him to shove it. That's what she should do. Wait one second. When Xerxes sends the attendant to the queen's party to inform her, you need to come, okay? And, And he goes and tells her, Please understand, all her girlfriends aren't encouraging her to tell her husband and put him in his place. That's not what they're suggesting. All her girlfriends, you know what they're telling her? Do it. Because you don't say no to the king. You don't say no to him. And the minute she makes that decision, you can just imagine all her girlfriends going, Oh, girl, you just messed up. Because you know what the rest of the story of Esther is? The story of another queen called Esther. Because Vashti is no more. Because of that decision right there. See, she knows that by making this decision, she will lose her crown, her position, her wealth, her social standing, and her husband. Which really draws us to the next characteristic of a healthy marriage and a healthy family is to have a moral backbone. Do you have a moral backbone? Are you willing to be more interested in character than comfort? Would you be willing to give up career advancement to do something that is right? Would you be willing to give up wealth to do something that is right? Would you be willing to give up popularity at school To stand up for what is right? Would you be willing to lose a relationship because the guy wants you to do something you know is wrong? To have a moral backbone and to have character and be a person of integrity. See, in a room this size, I guarantee you, there's at least 20 of us that have an issue and a decision right now to make, and we're teetering back and forth, what should I do, what should I do? And the reason you're doubting is because instinctively, you know what is being asked from you doesn't match up with this book. And that's why you're struggling. And I want to encourage you, you know what? You may lose some things. You may lose some friends, and you may lose some wealth, and you may lose career advancement or fame or whatever it is. Stand for what is right anyway. Stand for what is right anyway, because someday God will reward you. And at the very least, your kids are watching you and you will build within them a legacy that will take them forward, reminding them that we aren't about just comfort. We are about character. This is it. This is all we get from Vashti. And her one action is mentioned as something honorable. She stood for what was right. And she lost pretty much everything else and i just want to say good for her good for her and i hope that you whatever if you make the right decision stand for what is right now after she says no predictably this is what happened let's put the next verse up there when the attendants delivered on the left side when the attendants delivered king's command queen vashti refused to come then the king became furious and he burned with anger which You know what? Think about it. He's embarrassed in front of his friends. He's going to show her off. She says, no, they're laughing at him. It it makes sense, right? I think I'm God, so she should do whatever I tell her to do. You could see this coming, right? The top five causes of anger. You see them on the screen there. Frustration 
If you're late for work and there's a lot of traffic on the highway, you're going to get frustrated, angry. Okay. Uh, Another one is insecurity. Very interesting study of insecurity. How those of us who maybe struggle with self-esteem, it turns into anger. And we are controlled by anger of wanting to make ourselves look better in front of other people's eyes. Uh, Selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. I want to watch the TV show I want to watch. I want to go to the restaurant I want to go to. I want to do on vacation what I want to do. And if I don't get my way, I'm going to get pissed. That's anger. It's just a form of selfishness, right? Hurt or pain. When I take a hammer and by accident I hit my thumb, the first thing you feel is pain. And the second thing that many of us do is what? We, we get angry almost at ourselves, right? Pain and anger are very closely connected. Uh, the last one is unfulfilled expectations. I, you know, a lot of times I'm just having fun with you guys and I talk Raiders, Niners stuff. But this is actually will help you understand. When you talk to a Raider fan, we're not upset about the season. We thought we were going to win one. We got like We got like three out of it, right? You talk to a Raider fan, they're like, we got a high draft pick. We're looking forward to next year, you know, because we didn't have very high expectations. When you talk to a Niner fan, they're much more upset. Have you noticed? Why? Just their expectations. A lot of Niner fans thought, I think we have a team that maybe we can compete for the Super Bowl. So there's one amen. Yeah, it was. So by the way, and this is completely a side note. Every time our youth pastor, Dave Sauer, or his wife, that was her this morning, Anytime they mention the Seattle Seahawks and put down our Bay Area teams, I take $1,000 out of his youth ministry. So I just want you to know, I have a lot of power. I don't mind using it. So the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs warns us about anger. Proverbs 15, a hot tempered person starts fights. Proverbs 14, a short-tempered people do foolish things. And here it comes, Proverbs 29. An angry person commits all kinds of sin. You do realize when you lose your temper, there's a cost to it. There's always a cost to it. Every single time you lose your temper, someone pays, right? Real quick, let me just give you a couple examples. Put the pictures up there. You may not be a soccer fan, but you'll remember on the left side, the captain of the French national team, Zinedine Zidane, in the World Cup final, head butts Materazzi. What was the cost? Well, they lost the World Cup final, and many people point to what happened right there. The next picture, Moses. For, for, for all those years leading God's people in the wilderness, he loses his temper over and over and over and over and over again. Do you know what it cost Moses? Well, at the end of his life, God says, yeah, you know what? <clears throat> All the rest get to go into the promised land. You don't get to go. Ow, that's that's harsh. Do you remember the next one? Remember old Kanye? You know, you know, Taylor Swift's getting an award. He gets up upset. He decides, no, she shouldn't have won it. What was the cost there? Well, he certainly lose some respect from a lot of people. But you know what? It's interesting when you just, you know, it's not like I'm reading up on it, but when you just read the things on the internet or something, you know what the cost was? The cost was to Taylor Swift and Beyonce because they were embarrassed. That was not fun for them. What about the Hulk? What's the cost when he loses his temper? Well, at least a new shirt and a new pair of pants. I mean, that's co- it's going to cost them at least that. Do you realize every time you lose your temper, it's costing you and your family? Do you realize that? Do you realize that some of you, you are hurting your spouse and you are pushing your kids further and further away from you because you can't control your temper? 
Here's the biggest issue I have with Xerxes in his temple. Let me let me show you the verses in verse 12. It says he became furious and burned with anger. And then in chapter two, it says later when King Xerxes fury had subsided. Now, if you're just reading through the story, right, it almost sounds like, yeah, he got upset. It was a Friday night. It was a party. Just give him the weekend by Monday morning. He's fine. That's kind of how it reads. Except here's the difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. All you got to do is just do a little research and very, very quickly you're going to discover there's a time lapse between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. You want to know how much time goes by between end of chapter one and beginning of chapter two? Three and a half years. It takes this dude three and a half years for his fury to subside. Here's what I've discovered about how we handle anger. Some of us vent it. We let it out. Some of us disguise it. Right. And we, we, oh, no, I'm not upset. Some of us bury it. No, you know, we pretend like it doesn't exist. And some of us do exactly what Xerxes does. We feed it. And we entertain it. And we mull it over. And we think it over. And we tell our friends and we tell our parents and we tell if we put it on Facebook and we tell oh, and then we mull. And then if they say that and if I, I'm then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to say this and we go on and on and on and on. And something that happened to you years ago, you are still ticked off about because you won't let it go. And I'm just grow up. Don't be Xerxes. Yeah, whatever they did to you was wrong. I get that. But at some point in time, you got to move on, my friend. Right? You got to learn how to be mature about your emotions. Okay? You got to be mature about how to handle that and what to do with that. But don't feed it because then they keep winning. Right? They keep winning. I got to move on. Let's go. Put the next verse up there. Verse 13 and 14. Uh, what are they going to do now with Queen Vashi? Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matter of law and justice. Xerxes spoke with wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. So, so remember, they're all there. He calls his cabinet. What are we going to do? Queen Vashti said no to the king. What are we going to do? Now, I'm not going to read it, but if you have your Bibles open, what's interesting is from 13, verse 13, all the way to verse 22, the whole rest of the chapter, half of chapter one. Do you know what it is? It's his wise men and experts getting together, trying to decide what to do. So you could just imagine, we, oh, if all our if our wives found out what Queen Vashti did, if our wives found out that she said no to you, well, you know what's going to happen? They're going to say no to us. They're going to think they can. They're going to think they can have a mind of their own. Oh, an opinion of, of their. We can't have that. So they get it's kind of rather humorous because he can't control his wife. So he's going to come up with an edict. And here's what the edict says. Wives. Which should obey their husbands. That's it. You got to do it now. Oh, yeah, that worked out real good. Real good. By the way, and I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to say it. I think it's pretty clear, especially when you read the book of Ephesians. Guys, we are called to be the servant leaders of our home. That no way, no shape, no form means I'm the boss of my wife. And if you don't understand what that means, it proves my point even more. You got to seek wise counsel. Let me just ask you a question. 
when I talk marriage and parenting, easy or hard? hard. It's tough. It's, it's, not, it, it, it's not so much like pumping gas in your car. It's, it's more like brain surgery. It's a lot of work. I got a great wife. Those of you who know Sandy, you know I got a great wife. But for 25 years, we've worked hard at our marriage. Last summer, when I had the whole summer off the sabbatical, one of the weeks we went to a marriage conference. And it's not because we have problems. It's because we want to keep improving in our marriage. And here's what I want. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I just am not. This whole parenting thing, this whole marriage thing, this whole women thing, I, I, I'm not smart enough. My wife, I need help. I, so you know what I do? Over 25 years, I got counsel from my parents, from pastors, from small group leaders, from counselors, from therapists, from books, from seminars. I'll, I'll, I'll get anything I can get. And so should you. This afternoon... Um, if we have your email and if we don't give us your email, we're not going to nag you. But the, this afternoon, we're going to send everybody in the church and emails with five suggestions of books for parenting and five for marriage. You could delete it if you want. I don't care. It's fine. It won't, it won't hurt my feelings. I don't know. Right. But here's here's what bothers me about that suggestion and what we're going to do. We're going to throw it at you anyway. Typically, and I'm going to stereotype. OK, so please. Our wives will be more likely willing to open it, go on to Amazon, read what they all the books are and think, oh, that one sounds like a good one. And they, our wives, are more likely to buy it and read it. And we agree with them in principle we're going to read it. And then it sits on the table and we never read it. Now, I get it, guys. We don't like to read. I don't like to read. I really don't. I hate reading. I just want to watch a movie. But I do like to learn and I don't know how else to do it other than reading. So I just want to say, you know, when my car makes a funny noise, I don't feel bad about it. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I take it to the mechanic. When my arm last year, two years ago, when I had pain right here, I didn't feel bad about it. I just went to Kaiser. They fixed me up. When my marriage has issues, don't feel bad about it. It's just called life. No one has a perfect marriage. Not you, not me. Go get some help. Read a book. Get some counsel. There's small groups right back there. Marriage classes. Marriage groups. You want a good marriage? Get some counsel. Get some advice. Someone that can help you out. Okay, I got to wrap this sucker up. I'll show you chapter 2, verse 1. This is how the whole... And I want to go right into the first verse of of chapter 2 because it closes the story. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Remember I told you the three and a half years between chapter one and chapter two? You know what happens during those three and a half years? He fights against the Greeks and loses. He loses. One of the few battles Xerxes lost. So what happens at the beginning of chapter two, he's coming back with what's left of his army into the citadel of Zusa, a defeated king. There's no parade. There's nobody going, ah, Xerxes is a god. Now, he just lost. He just got his, you know, his tails between his leg and he goes back to the palace. So you got to understand, this is not Xerxes saying, I need a woman in my bed. This is Xerxes saying, I need my wife. I need her friendship. I need her companionship. I need her support. The support that only a wife 
or a spouse can give. And those of you who are married know exactly what I'm talking about. See, this is this is Xerxes going. Maybe I overreacted a little. You think? We talked about counsel. You want to know what the best counsel he could have got? Is someone have the courage? And if you don't have someone that has the courage to speak truth into your life, you got to find someone. Someone that could have gone to this guy and say, dude, man, you were an idiot. Now go apologize. Make it right. You see, chapter two, there's still a chance. There's still time. Go apologize. And that's why I say one of the characteristics is to pursue forgiveness. I don't care if it's big things you messed up on or small things you messed up on. You want a strong family? Then pursuing forgiveness is an important characteristic. Let's wrap this up. Let's put the summary slide up there. Remember I told you God brought you here to at least work on one thing in your family. Here's the summary slide. Some of us need to work on humility and eliminate pride. Some of us need self-control, our drinking, our words, our spending, whatever it is. Some of us need to stand for what is right and be a person of character. Some of us need to work on patience and tame our temper. Others of us need to seek out wise counsel. We all need advice. And some of us need to be much quicker to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Here's your last assignment of our study time. I need you to look at that screen. And I need, to pick, I need you to pick your one thing. Look at the screen. Don't look at me. Pick the one thing that would best benefit your family or your marriage. Pick it. Okay, what I'm going to have you do is I want you to spend 30 seconds talking to God. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, and I want you to tell God whatever one thing you put, God, help me do that. Help me be courageous to follow through on that. Help me be disciplined to figure out how to improve that. Talk to God about your one thing and make a decision to work on it. 20 seconds, talk to God. Why don't you stand with me? We'll close in a word of prayer. Let me just quickly say, I think we're going to have someone in the prayer room. If you've got something going on in your family, in your marriage, you'd like someone to pray for you, just go right over there and let someone pray with you for 30 seconds to a minute, just whatever you're going through. Heavenly Father, I, you know how much I, you stretched me this past week as I studied this passage. And as you helped me understand, a big part of what's going on here is just marriage and family. You know how much I love my marriage and family just as much as everyone here loves their family. Whether they're married or not, we're all part of some family. Father, the hard part for me today is to just pick one thing. Because I see a couple things on that screen that I need to work on. But Father, I'm going to ask that your Holy Spirit would cement into, into our minds the one thing you most want us to work on. Give us the humility maybe to have a conversation with a spouse or someone in our family and talk about what we learned today. Father, strengthen our families. Knowing that as you strengthen our families, you make us a stronger church. You make us a stronger community and a stronger nation. Father, thank you so much. Your word is so practical and it's so helpful. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.
It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.